Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 102. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is Tim First. Before I talk to Tim about his time with the Karamazov brothers and so much more, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. You can find out more about this great group of jugglers at juggle.org. Also, go to Amazon.com and check out my books, including my latest novel, Bud Suckers. All right, now drop everything. Get ready for Tim First. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 102. My special guest, Mr. Tim First. Hi, Tim. Hello, Dan. It's very nice to hear your voice. I thought uh, that we would break this into three parts with the pre-Karamazov, the during the Karamazov, and the finally the post-Karamazov life of Tim First. So if you don't mind, let's start with where you were born and what your childhood was like. Okay. Born in San Francisco, California. At the age of two, my parents moved down to Palo Alto. So I grew up in the Bay Area, ended up going to Stanford, had a relatively pleasant and uneventful childhood. <laughs> yeah, brothers and sisters? Uh, one, one older brother, two older sisters, youngest of four, and they were sufficiently older than I was that by the time I was in junior high, they were all off to college and beyond. So while I didn't grow up as an only child, at times it sort of felt that way because both my parents worked and I was on my own a lot. And what kind of work did your parents do? My father was a chemist, toxicologist, professor, thought, and actually mostly did research at first at Stanford and then at the University of San Francisco. My mother was a professional librarian who ended up coincidentally as the head chemistry librarian at Stanford. And any interest in showbiz as you were growing up? Any interest in the circus or, or juggling? Or is that pretty much uh, something you discovered on your own? No, nope, not at all. I grew up uh, expecting to become a mathematician when very young, had an aptitude for math and also for chess, played a lot of chess through high school and was, when I say went to Stanford, uh, planning to go into mathematics. And what was your awareness of juggling as a child? Did you, did you see it on television or any live shows? Were you even uh, any interest in juggling at all? Really didn't have much awareness of it at some point when I was probably in early junior high. My father taught me to juggle three oranges. My father dabbled in many things, did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So I didn't do anything other than occasionally pick up three oranges uh, a couple of times a year and you know, juggle them in a basic cascade. At about that same time or shortly thereafter, uh, he also taught me to swing Indian clubs. And he had actually swung Indian clubs in the early 1930s in Los Angeles, UCLA, and sort of stumbled into the Olympic trials. Didn't make the team, but also didn't know what the rules were. But after Indian clubs had pretty much died out, he did teach me club swinging at a time when we could go down to the local sporting goods store and I could buy a new set of Spalding Indian clubs. And then a couple of years later, I continued club swinging and got another slightly larger pair. When we get to it, that's sort of how <laughs> what led me more into juggling. Well, the club swinging was just as an exercise back then. I mean, people have said that juggling was in the Olympics, but it was really just this club swinging which is sort of a, more of a series of patterns where the, the clubs, I don't believe, ever left your hands. That's correct. Juggling was an exhibition in the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. And then 
uh, appeared again in the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles. It used to be the case, I don't know if it still is, that the host country could introduce a sport to the Olympics. And so the U.S. introduced it in 1904. All three medals were taken by Americans. No other country continued it in the Olympics. The U.S. tried again in 1932. Again, all three medals went to Americans. And then that was it for club swinging in the Olympics. The other thing that was going on was that after swinging heavy wooden clubs for several minutes, it sort of exhausted the muscles in your arms and made it difficult to compete in a lot of other gymnastic events. After the 1932 Olympics, they were going more toward the six events there are today and looking for all-around gymnasts. And so things like rope climbing and Indian club swinging fell by the wayside. Indian club swinging continued uh, college gymnastics for, I think, until the 60s, maybe 70s, and then was dropped from college gymnastics at that point. And it pretty much died out until jugglers discovered it in the 1970s. I started teaching people on the West Coast, uh, San Francisco area in the early 1970s. Al Jacobs started teaching people on the East Coast because he had learned from, I believe, an Olympian. There were these sort of two centers of club swinging, and it gradually spread into the general juggling population. I started teaching workshops and club swinging at like the Portland Juggling Festival, although years before that had taught Peaches, Peter Canine, who was out visiting from New York. And then he went back to New York and taught his friend, Michael Motion, what he had learned from me. And anyway, it gradually club swinging sort of spread through the juggling communities. Yeah, I first remember uh, Alan Jacobs because it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere and he sort of had a, already a, a very nice routine. It just seemed perfectly formed, and there was really no development of it. So that's very interesting, sort of how it had a resurgence from this very early days in the Olympics. Yeah, and I also started doing what was a club swinging piece in the Flying Caramazzo Brothers shows, probably the late 1970s. But because it was done with uh, glowing wands in the dark, people had no idea that's what I was doing. And also you got into the meteor, but let's, we'll talk about that in a bit when we get towards your, your later juggling. Let's talk about how you just learned to juggle in the first place. So how did you actually learn to juggle? You were doing the club swinging. Right. When did you actually start juggling with the clubs? Well, again, my father taught me to juggle three oranges in our backyard. He also, when, when we would work in the, in the garden, you know, we would like balance a rake on his hand. And so I, I learned to balance things at about that same time. But again, didn't really do much with it. Also, from the time I was in junior high, I started doing a lot of international folk dancing, especially Balkan dancing. By the late 60s, early 70s, I was in a semi-professional dance group in San Francisco. And one year, the group was doing English Morris dancing, where there is traditionally a figure who, a performer who is sort of not exactly a jester, but would to wander through the dancing doing other things. And so uh, I went to the California Renaissance Fair in Novato in the late 60s, early, early 70s, probably early 70s, juggling with a dance group. And that's where I actually saw my first juggling show, met my first professional juggler, which was Martin Gray. Mm. Yeah who was actually past president of the IJA. And I ran into him many, many years later uh, in Amsterdam, where he was performing as Martin Legray. Yeah, I saw him there probably uh, 
in Amsterdam five or six years ago. No, oh, still there. Good. He's still there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I probably saw him there in the somewhere in the nineties. So I went up to him after his show and asked to see one of his juggling clubs. And at that time, juggling clubs were rare. I think his were made by Stu Reynolds, and he was very hesitant to let me even touch one. But when I did and then started doing some club swinging moves with it, suddenly he became very interested in what I was doing. So he taught me a little bit about club juggling, which I'd never done. And I taught him some club swinging. And then he referred me to Homer Stack, who was a retired vaudeville juggler living a little south of San Francisco. And I went over to Homer Stack's house a few times to get a few juggling lessons and actually learned to pass clubs from Larry Pizzoni of the uh, Pickle Family Jugglers, which was before the Pickle Family Circus started. Yeah, so I started juggling slightly as a hobby. And then after two years at Stanford, studying mostly architecture and philosophy rather than mathematics, I was drafted and as a conscientious objector, had to work for two years of alternate service I finally found a job at the Stanford Medical Library, which was technically a hospital job, so it qualified. And during lunch breaks, rather than sitting in the little break room with a few librarians who were chain-smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, I would go out into the courtyard and juggle. And that's when I really started juggling, you know, like half hour a day, then an hour a day, and and then off and on pretty much any time I could get my hands on um, balls, clubs, whatever. And you said you were a conscientious objector. Did you consider yourself uh, political? Were you involved in political activities at that time? No, I just had a philosophical disagreement with war and with violence. <laughs> it makes sense to me. I think I would have taken the same approach. And you were about 19 at this time when you were drafted? Yeah. Uh, at 18, I never registered I did not register for the draft. Right. I found out that there was no statute of limitations on registration. It was considered your ongoing duty to register. So I registered on my 19th birthday and immediately applied to be classified as a conscientious objector because I was a student at Stanford, which meant that I was fairly easy to find. And I also did not think that there should be student deferments. You didn't think there should be student deferments? I don't quite understand that. So you don't think that people attending college shouldn't be uh, eliminated from the draft? That's correct. I think that if there's going to be compulsory service, which I don't think there should be, that it should apply to everyone, men and women. I think that by granting student deferments, it basically was a way of essentially dumbing down the army. Hmm. Anyone who could get into college and get a student deferment generally would, and the people who were being drafted were often the people who could not get into college. I thought that was a bad idea, both philosophically, as far as if you're going to have uh, universal service, and it should be universal. Also thought that women should be just as subject to the selective service system to the draft as men, and that there should perhaps be uh, physical exemptions from active service, but not for basically postponing, sometimes indefinitely, becoming involved. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, actually, a lot of sense. Now, when you were at Stanford, you said you were thinking about becoming an architect. Did you do any performing, and did you have any any paid performances there, or 
purely uh, just doing the academic route? Well, I was still performing with a dance company and juggling as a hobby. And then I met Paul Magid and Howard Patterson, who originally performed as Patterson Magid and then Snout and Glib. And then in 1974, got together with Paul's high school friend, Randy Nelson, and hitchhiked up to Spokane to perform at the World's Fair and decided they needed a new name and chose the name the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Howard happened to be reading the Brothers Karamazov. They thought some of the character traits fit, and they liked the idea of a little intellectual joke of juxtaposing Dostoevsky's characters with you know the sort of feeling of a lighthearted sort of circus act, thus the Flying Karamazov Brothers, although we were never a circus act, another little joke. Mm-hmm. We never did trapeze, which people always assumed we did. So yeah, I have here that they were formed in April 23rd, 1973 at a Renaissance Fair in Northern California. Is that sort of jive with the story or is that uh, yeah. Wikipedia got it a little bit wrong there? No, that's quite possible. They were, the two of them were performing started performing together. They lived across the hall from each other at UC Santa Cruz. Actually, the first thing they did together, Paul was in a play and the director said, hey, you, you know, you juggle. Maybe you can do a little something before the, you know, before the play to sort of set the tone, put people in a good mood. And so he got his friend Howard and they put together a few juggling pieces and did that before the show and were better received than the play was. They started doing shows around the various colleges at UC Santa Cruz, started going to the Renaissance Fair, and basically worked their way through college doing shows. I say Randy joined them for the summer of 74, which is when they took on the new name, the Flying Karamazov Brothers. I met them at around that time through mutual friends. They just became friends and started juggling together sporadically. You know, I was over Stanford. They were not quite an hour away in Santa Cruz. We would get together occasionally and throw some things around. And then they were going to be doing a theater show in Santa Cruz at UC Santa Cruz and asked me to run lights and sound for their show because they had a very theatrical vision of stage performance. And so instead of doing the quick cuts that you would see in a film, they wanted to recreate that by quick lighting changes and they had done a few shows around the campus, but we'd spend several days training a lighting crew to do an hour-long show. And so it'd be good if we had a regular lighting person, sound person, who could do all those things. Um, I had finished my two years of alternate service and was trying to decide what to do next. I pretty much decided to go into architecture, but Stanford had had some funding cutbacks. The architecture department had become a division of civil engineering. The design half the department left. So I looked at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which had one of the best architecture departments, but it would take a little while to apply and get in. So I figured, fine, I'll work with these guys, work with these friends for a little bit until I figured out what I want to do if I wanted to go to uh, into architecture. When they graduated in 1976, they decided that they wanted to do it full-time for a bit. And so Randy and I joined them. Randy quit his job, and the four of us moved to San Francisco, formed a legal partnership, registered the name the Flying Karamazov Brothers, uh, rented a flat in the scenic and historic Kate Ashbury district, oddly enough, a few blocks from where I was born. And we started our, making our living that way. Initially, I was running lights and sound for the shows and building props. It also happened that I was the best juggler in the group. 
So one night when we were performing at the Magic Cellar in San Francisco, being the only non-Magic act to perform there, I came on stage, I set the lights at a certain level, came on stage to do a juggling piece that we'd worked out, but we decided to do it on short notice, so I didn't actually so we didn't actually write any lines for me. <laughs> so I did it as a silent character. So we did the piece on stage and it worked well. After the show, people said, you know, how great it was to have the silent character with three other guys who talked incessantly. And so we figured, great, this is easier than writing lines. And so I remained a silent character with the Karamazovs. It sounds like a lot of stuff was basically timing. I mean, you're looking for a new name and you just happened to be reading that novel. And then you just, like you had no aspirations at first of joining them on stage. You just, nope. just doing the sounds and lights. Yeah. Like I say, it was Howard, Paul and Randy who came up with the name at the time. They figured, eh, we can always change it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Famous last words. <laughs> well, it also started a trend where like, like, you know, obviously we took the name, you know, Raspini Brothers, that it really, really sort of reinforced that idea of a juggling act being like a family act. And then of course you guys all took uh, theatrical names which was something very yeah. few other acts ever did. Yeah, we, we took names from Fyodor Karamazov's, Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov. And so what were all the names? If you can go through the, the, the first four, and also their stage names. Paul Magid was Dmitry Karamazov. Howard Patterson was Ivan Karamazov, or Ivan, but we call him Ivan. Randy Nelson was Alyosha Karamazov, who were the three brothers in the book. And then when I came on, when I joined as the technical director, I took the name Fyodor Karamazov, or Fyodor, which was a little ambiguous because Fyodor was the father in the book, but Fyodor was also the name of the author, Fyodor Dostoevsky. And so I was sort of behind the scenes. I was also a year or two older than everyone else and not necessarily a father figure, but I ended up with the stage name Fyodor. And then when Randy left at the end of 1980 and Sam joined beginning of 1981, he got the name Smirchikov, who was the, uh, you know, the bastard half-brother in the book. And then over the years, as people left and joined the group, different people took different names from the group, although not actually brothers in the book. We always used to tell people that, you know, yes, we were brothers, just not with each other. <laughs> right. As, as all men are brothers. So let's talk about the years from 1976 to 1980, when it's the first four uh, Karamazovs, and they decide to go full-time in 76. What kind of venues and uh, shows were you doing then? We always thought of ourselves as doing theater shows. And so we were playing clubs around San Francisco, clubs, coffee houses, you know, let us try out material and do various things but they weren't really making enough money to support ourselves. So we would do the, the California Renaissance Fairs, the Northern California Fair in the fall, the Los Angeles Renaissance Fair in the spring. And then later in the year when we were uh, running short on funds and eating a lot of white rice, we would go out on the street in San Francisco, primarily like Union Square, occasionally Fisherman's Wharf, and this was before the pier, before anything organized at the cannery. At that point, street performing was just that. You went out on the street. You tried to do as many shows as you could before the police told you to stop. And so would you, would you call your show mostly like a club passing show? Or how much uh, individual stuff did you do compared to teamwork at that time? It was mostly teamwork, but it wasn't necessarily club passing. A lot of it was verbal. 
A lot of it was comedy. There was some music mixed in. There was some some ball juggling, some club juggling. When I started performing, one of the things I, I did was cigar boxes with Paul Howard and Randy playing musical instruments as backup. So it was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, live music always seemed to be a very important part. Uh, were you also musicians as well as jugglers when you started? Well, Howard was a serious musician, still is. Paul played clarinet, but he was not really a musician. Both Randy and Sam weren't enough of an instrument to do what they needed to do in the show. But what we did do was designed and built juggling musical instruments, starting with drums, because if you're standing there juggling three clubs, there's a moment that you have a club in your hand before you throw it where you have enough time to hit a drum behind you. Mm -hmm. And you can either hit it down below you or up above your shoulder. And so we built basically the, a backdrop that had four drum heads built into it, two on each side of the body, one at knee level, one above shoulder level. And the drums were tuned differently so that you could play the drums while juggling clubs. Also got a concert grand marimba and with some experimentation found out that we could build a built juggling. They weren't exactly clubs. They actually had rubber motor mounts on the ends of them which gave a pretty good tone when striking the keys of the marimba. So we could play both marimba and drums at the same time. We had another piece bouncing balls off of tuned drums, which is probably the te technically the most difficult piece we ever did. There's a several minute long piece where you would, would sometimes bounce a drum to the bounce a ball off of a drum head to the person across from you, sometimes just to yourself, and you'd be working with both hands and it never repeated. And it was this extraordinarily, stupidly complex piece. But it sounded pretty good the few times we got it right. And we discovered that if you put metal bars on your hand, you could get a good sound from the handle of the club hitting your hand. We eventually went to gloves that had snaps sewn onto them so that every time you caught a club, it would make a very strong click. And so with three people juggling clubs doing that and one set of clubs with bells attached to them as sort of the, the drummer keeping the beat, it was possible to do some fairly complex juggling rhythmic musical pieces. And then we also mixed in tap dancing with juggling and rhythm and eventually built what we call the floor piano which was a series of wooden keys on a framework with a drum pickup on the underside of each one where I would bounce lacrosse balls on the keys where each key would, you know, the vibration would trigger a specific note using your drum trigger and electronics. Nothing was sequenced. This was just, you know, whatever key you hit, that's the note you got. This was before the movie Big, before Michael Menes, and we were using that along with it. I think you mean Dan Menendez, the piano. I mean Dan Menendez, yes, sorry. Because you actually played the keys. Like his, his thing was, everybody knows now that it's sequence, that the actual notes don't correspond with where they hit. I was actually playing the keys note for note, bouncing balls off of them, and also then going up and uh, dancing on the keys, and then dancing on the keys while bouncing balls off the keys to play some fairly complex uh, pieces. Now, this sounds like some pretty big equipment. How did you guys travel? Did you have a bus? We started in a step band with basically a bag of balls, a bag of sickles and hatchets, 
a bag of clubs, a baritone horn case full of cigar boxes, and a couple of musical instruments. And then as things expanded, we went to a larger step van, and then a school bus. And then by the time we started touring our Broadway show, we were we had you know a 40-foot bus and a truck, and we're traveling with 2,000 pounds of backdrops and costumes and props and far too much stuff. Let's talk about the progression a little bit. Like, what do you consider like a break where you sort of see the momentum? Like, like you know how juggling shows are. You're out doing these shows and these fairs. When did it kind of like break a little bit bigger where you start like, wow, we could make this a full-time thing and we can do these theater shows. What kind of support or breaks did you get that kind of helped you along your way in these early years? Well, in the early years, like I say, we were doing clubs and coffee houses and festivals initially San Francisco and then up and down the West Coast. And then we got hired to do Summerfest in Chicago on the pier. And performing there, we were seen by someone from the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And through that, got booked to do our own theater show in their small experimental theater, which we did basically on a, you know, on a percentage basis, but it went very well. We started selling out shows, and then that led to doing our show on the Lort Theater Circuit, the League of Regional Theaters. Mm. So we started doing our full two-hour stage show at theaters around the country. Actually, another place where we, I guess in the late 70s, we were recruited to do the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. The booking person from the Minnesota Renaissance Festival would come out to the California Renaissance Fair to try to find the next big act because they had the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, which was the big act at the Minnesota Renaissance Fair that was only going to be there one more year. Yeah, that was Penn and Teller. That was the name of their act before they were Penn and Teller. That was Penn, Teller, and Weir Christmer, who's a musician. It was a three-person act. So we overlapped with them for one year at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, but we didn't really want to drive all the way to Minnesota just to camp out and perform at the Renaissance Festival. So they were able to arrange for us to do shows at a dinner theater in Minneapolis, Double Riggs ETC. So we would do our full show Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Minneapolis with two shows Saturday night. But then after the show Friday night, we would drive an hour out to the Renaissance Fair, camp there, do street shows, stage shows all day at the Renaissance Festival, drive an hour back to town, do our theater show drive back out, camp, do shows all day Saturday, drive back to Minneapolis, do two shows Saturday night, drive back, camp, do shows all day Sunday at the Renaissance Fair, drive back to Minneapolis, do another show Sunday night. That It was a little exhausting. So even the Karamazovs had to pay their dues, right? These are those oh, yeah. years of uh, dues paying. Yeah, and so we did that and then started getting booked, coming back to Dudley Riggs without doing the Renaissance Festival. It was really the starting to do shows at the Goodman Theater in Chicago that got us into the regional theater circuit. And it was in 1983, actually before then, the dates, who knows? Well, since 1980 was the year you won the Obie Award for juggling and cheap theatrics. It was 1980. Right, which we figured was for the shortest run, the farthest off Broadway. <laughs> right. We did like a week at the other end, which had been the bitter end. And then there was an ownership dispute that became the other end. 
for a few years, and then it became the Bitter End again, one of the old folk clubs in, in the village. And we did our show there. Yeah, from that, much to our surprise, won an Obie Award. I mean, it was always our joke when we were living together all in the same flat in San Francisco, living on white rice and street shows in the mid-late 1970s, that you know we would be on Broadway by 1984. As it happens, we got our show booked onto Broadway in 1983. So we were a year ahead of schedule. And what year did they do the uh, the Comedy of Errors and the Showtime special? Was that around that same time or a few years later? That was the same time. What happened was at the end of our run on Broadway, we then taped the Showtime special at the Old Ed Sullivan Theater before heading west to perform at the Oregon Country Fair. It was around that time that we did Comedy of Errors what happened was Greg Mosier, who was the artistic director of the Goodman Theater, got a directive from his board saying that he had to do had to produce at least one classic every year. And he was more enamored of David Mabbitt and modern playwrights and classics were either Greek or Shakespeare. So he was reading through a lot of plays and came across a line in the Comedy of Errors. This town is full of cousinages, nimble jugglers that deceive the eye. But, huh, jugglers, flying Karamazov brothers. So he contacted us because we were always theatrically oriented. This sounds interesting. And we got Offner involved. We'd met him at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival and we'd become friends and had done shows with him in Minneapolis as well. We did a show called Flying Karamazov Brothers Live on Stage. Some people hmm. misread as live on stage. <laughs> exactly, right? That's well, funny. It, it had to do with driving through North Beach when we were living in San Francisco and Howard looking up, and this was at the height of the topless era, and uh, Howard looked up and saw a sign and read it as, nude girls live on stage. <laughs> and he was intrigued by the idea. And so we put together a show, Flying Caramazzo Brothers Live on Stage, where the setting, you know, we had, you know, like a, you know, an easy chair and a lamp, and it was sort of a living room yeah. uh, stage set that we did a show at Dudley Riggs in Minneapolis, and Ovner did that with us. Anyway, so we did Comedy of Errors at the Goodman Theater on their main stage, and then it was restaged for the 1984 Summer Olympic Theater Festival in Los Angeles, which was amusing because there were like four theater companies doing Shakespeare at the Olympic Arts Theater Festival. And it was the Royal Shakespeare Company, and it was Teatro du Soleil from Paris. And it was Teatro Piccolo di Milano from Italy, and it was the Flying Caramazza Brothers from the United States. Uh, we were amused. <laughs> uh, and then shortly after that, Greg Mosier moved from the Goodman Theater in Chicago to the Lincoln Center in New York. And when the Lincoln Center was ready to reopen the Vivian Beaumont Theater, one of the theaters at the Lincoln Center that had been closed for a few years. He restaged the Comedy of Errors to reopen the Vivian Beaumont, which was also broadcast live by PBS as part of the Live from Lincoln Center series, which is how a lot of people ended up seeing it. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was also like kind of what they started off with, they call, started calling a New Vaudeville. Like, what do you think about that kind of era and that term, New Vaudeville? Well, the term New Vaudeville was actually coined by Clive Barnes when he reviewed our Broadway show in 1983, and he was a theater critic, one of the major theater critics in New York, and he gave us a re-review and referred to our show as New Vaudeville. And we liked the idea, and the term sort of caught on, 
and then started being applied to Avner and Bill Irwin and all sorts of performers. I think it's, well, sort of the best term we've come up with because what we were doing in many ways was you know, vaudeville-like, except that we were not operating under the strict rules of the vaudeville circuits. And you know, what we were doing had its basis in vaudeville and in English Music Hall and in European Variety, but we tried to be non-sexist and more in keeping with the 1970s and beyond. So you know, until a better term comes along, it's fine with me. And, and what year did uh, Randy Nelson leave uh, replaced by Sam Williams? Was that around this time or did he, uh, I don't well, have my notes what year he left. Randy left for the first time at the end of December 1980 after we finished a run at the arena stage in Washington, D.C. And then Sam joined us at the beginning of 1981. Then Randy rejoined I think in 1983, in order to do the Comedy of Errors, which is focused on two sets of identical twins. And so Paul and Howard, who actually look like each other as one set of identical twins, Sam and Randy, who look nothing like each other (laughs) as the other set of identical twins. And I played William Shakespeare. Oh, that's funny. Although everyone played like multiple parts. So backstage, it was mad. We were constantly changing costumes. Yeah, one scene I was juggling you know, I was a townsperson juggling sickles with Jeff Raz. Then I would be up on the balcony in Shakespeare's costume with a script book in front of me and a quill pen, you know, shaking my head in disbelief at what was happening on stage and then change costumes again for another, uh, for a different character in another scene. I, mean, I think there were 19 people in the cast and probably twice that many characters. And when did this, because um, I also thought, I thought it was funny because I remember a story about the Jewel of the Nile because uh, Randy was sort of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, California-looking kind of fella. And I guess you guys were hired to play uh, some kind of Arabian sword jugglers. Yeah. Okay, so just to finish up together, so Randy stayed with the group until 1988. So we performed as five people for five years. And then Randy left again after his third daughter was born. I think his wife basically said, I don't want to travel anymore. If you want to see me, if you want to see the kids, you you need to stop traveling. You need to settle down. And so he left the group and got a job with Apple because Steve Jobs was a fan. And that was sort of Randy's field of expertise anyway. And then Randy worked for Apple for many years then moved to Steve Jobs to Next, and then back to Apple, and was at DreamWorks for a few years, and then back to Apple, and just retired from Apple a couple of years ago. Yeah, I had that he was the, the dean of Pixar University, which sounded very impressive. Right. <laughs> yeah, he also was at Pixar for a while, teaching people how to use the software and systems there. So he did okay. He did okay outside the Karamazovs. Oh, yeah. He, he did thrived. quite well for himself. Good, good, good. As far as The Jewel of the Nile... What happened was Michael Douglas saw us perform in Los Angeles. This was just after they had done Romancing the Stone. And so he had the scriptwriters write in a part for us in The Jewel in the Nile. In the first version of the script that we saw, we were a, a carefree band of Sufis traveling across the desert in an old school bus. Michael Douglas had seen us, seen our old school bus in front of the theater. By the time the, the script had been rewritten three times, we had become a band of fierce desert warriors. And Danny DeVito became the comic relief. So we were supposed to play it straight and just be these fierce warriors. 
But hey, it was a major film. We spent two and a half months in Morocco and two weeks in the south of France and got great health insurance out of it. And at what point did Abner get involved? Because he also had a very major part in that movie. Yeah, uh, very major. So like I said, we met Abner at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival in probably like 1978, became good friends, would occasionally do shows with him. And I guess early on in our conversations with Michael Douglas, suggested Avner, who ended up being in sort of the title role of the film. Yeah, he was the Jewel of the Nile. Right, so that was fun. We were sometimes in the same place at the same time. Sometimes we would be filming in different places. And how did you guys feel as a group then? Did you feel like, wow, you know, we've really made it? I mean, did you really feel like that was... Uh, because at a certain, a certain time, I think the Flying Karamazov brothers were probably the only juggling act that people knew by name. I think this was yeah. probably towards the peak of your uh, public awareness. Did you get that sense that people knew you and that you were the jugglers people knew? I think we felt that we had somehow made it in the show business world when we performed on Broadway in 1983. And then doing a major feature film, which I think was 85, though Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, Kathleen Turner, that just sort of you know, cemented it, as it were. Yeah. And of course, you guys did a lot of other shows. You did like you did Seinfeld and Letterman and a lot of TV shows at, at the same time. Those were actually later. Those were later after I left the group. I think the television shows that I was involved with, there was a brief remake, redo of the Smothers Brothers show. And we were also on you know, the Dolly Parton show. So we performed a few times as an opening act, although... We really didn't like it. We got, you know, we once got an offer to do three years in Las Vegas doing seven minutes as part of the big variety show. But we, we thought about it. it That's not like your kind of thing. Yeah. No, no, thanks. We don't really like Las Vegas. We don't want to move there. And we're much more interested in doing our own two-hour theater show rather than the same seven minutes, 10 times a week in Las Vegas, even though the money might not be as good. We'd rather do what we enjoy doing. But you did share some stages with some pretty big names. Like I uh, have Sinatra that you worked with. Right. I think we're probably the only group ever to have opened for both Frank Sinatra and the Grateful Dead. Now, the Grateful Dead seems to make a lot more sense than Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, what happened was somewhere in the early 80s, maybe, we met Ken Kesey. Mm -hmm. No, it must have been in the late 70s. I think there was a, he was doing a poetic hoo-ha in Santa Cruz. And Paul and Howard met him. and. You know, we've stayed in touch for many, many years. We actually wrote a show while camping in his barn uh, outside of Eugene, Oregon. But he convinced the Grateful Dead that we should do something with them, which we did a number of times. We opened for the Grateful Dead at the closing of Winterland, New Year's Eve. We did New Year's Eve with them at the Oakland Auditorium. Actually, when we went to London for the first time in 1981, we saw that the Grateful Dead were performing at the Rainbow Room in London, and we had gone over a week early. It's our first time in Europe. We were trying to get acclimated, translate our show from American to English, and adjust to the time zone. We got in touch with the Dead, and they said, sure, come down and do something with us. <laughs> so we opened for the Dead in London as a way to promote our upcoming show in London. We also, in addition to opening for them, we came back at the time. And for many years, Mickey Hart and Billy Kreutzmann were doing what would be called the drum solo, except it, there were two of them. Yeah. We actually came back in the middle of the Dead Act and did some of our rhythm drumming along with them and jammed with them for a while during their set. And everyone had so much fun that they said, hey, we're going to Germany to do a show. Do you want to come with us? It's going to be televised around Europe. So if you're 
great, great way to promote our show. We went down to Essen, Germany with the dead and performed at Rock Palace, which is this once a year huge rock show televised throughout Europe that is done with two headliners. There's no like opening act and headliners, like two headliners. And the headliners that year were the Grateful Dead and the Who. And we were scheduled to, to perform in between them. Perfect. Well, actually, it wasn't perfect, as no. it turned out, <laughs> because it turned out that the Who had been announced as being part of the show before the Grateful Dead were announced. And so the live audience was 10,000 German Who fans. Oh, right, right. Now, Grateful Dead fans are gr- are wonderful. Yeah. We've done a lot of shows with the dead, very appreciative. Who fans, not so much. They just <laughs> want to see the who. Sure, so sure. To say yeah. it was a tough crowd would be an understatement. Still it sounds pretty it sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, but we survived. We you know, we got to spend some more time with both the dead and the who and then went back to London and did our run at the Mayfair Theater and then from there went to Dublin where we had an interesting experience because you know, we had shipped all of our props and equipment from London to Dublin. We got to Dublin only to find that all of our props were held up in customs because they wanted a bond posted. And we didn't have the cash to post a bond. And the promoter of our show in Dublin was out of the country. And we didn't know if we'd be able to get our props out of customs before our first show. We figured, well, we better try to get at least a minimum of things with which we can do a minimal show. So we went out, you know, we bought dog balls at pet stores <laughs> and we bought right. uh, sickles at a hardware store and we bought the makings for flaming torches and things seemed very odd. Like we would walk into a store, you know, you know, four guys, it was you know, gray and drizzling and raining and we'd be wearing long raincoats and berets and we'd walk into a store and everyone would fall silent. Then we realized what was going on was Bobby Sands was on a hunger strike in prison. The streets of Dublin were lined with riot police. And here were these four guys with long hair and berets buying makings for torches. Mm, They thought you were uh, terrorists or protesters or... Yeah. (laughs) But then just before we opened our show in Dublin, we went on The Late Show with Gay Byrne. And at the time, Ireland had one television station. And everyone watched the show and our show went over very well. And the next day, instead of getting these weird looks and silence, suddenly like little old ladies on buses were asking for our autograph. So it gave us an understanding of the power of television. And did you get your props uh, finally for your show or? Yeah, the props actually got released the afternoon of the show. So we were like frantically setting up. I think the first show started about 10 minutes late because we were still, you know, we had to focus the lights without the stage set being there, but we got the props just in time and did our show and everything went well. We did a week in Dublin. Let's talk about a couple of your famous routines and whether you were doing them and when you started doing them. Uh, One was what they call the terror trick where you had like nine different items and then you would sort of do a pattern between the three of you, I think, and all end up, what, drinking champagne and eating eggs and could you describe the terror trick for us? Indeed, there were nine different items which would be introduced one at a time with a little vignette, a little joke throughout the show. And then the finale of the show was 
initially Paul Howard and, and Randy juggling these nine, nine items in a triangle and passing them around. It would end with the egg being thrown high into the air, being caught in a frying pan, a flaming torch being put under the frying pan, and then the bottle of champagne, uh, the cork would pop and sort of foam out everywhere. And then I would appear with a tray with four champagne glasses. We'd fill the glasses with champagne, toast the audience, bow, and it was a great way to end a show. And the other routine you guys were very well known for was uh, something called the gamble. Could you describe that and how that got started? Yeah, Howard always enjoyed the challenge of juggling different objects. And so we thought we'd put that to use. So we wrote a piece that we called The Gamble, that a lot of people called The Challenge, where we would ask audience members to bring objects up onto stage for us to juggle. And then we would have the audience choose by acclamation which three objects they wanted one of us to juggle. And then Howard was almost always the person to do the juggling. And he would have three tries to keep all three objects in the air for 10 seconds. And there were things like what, like a, like a lump of jello, uh, a bag of water, like what kind of weird yeah. objects would he get? Okay, so if he succeeded, he would get a standing ovation. If he failed, he would get a pie in the face. So when we wrote the piece, we figured, you know, what are people going to have with them in the theater? We'll get jackets, shoes, an occasional umbrella, no big deal. Right, right. And then we did a month-long run, and people would come to see the show and give us a shoe and a jacket, umbrella, and then someone having seen the show would come back a week later and bring us exactly jello or a, <laughs> a fish or, yeah. or a dead fish. <laughs> we finally had to put some parameters on it. We were doing some shows at the Alligator Palace, which was a vaudeville theater in La Conner, Washington, started by the Reverend Shumley. And one of the pieces we were doing and it ended up with some rose petals on stage. And the second time that Shumley picked up a rose petal and gave it to us for one of the objects, we realized we better put some parameters on this and because rose petals tend to like flutter down rather than actually fall down. Yeah, there has to be a weight limit, right? Like something has to weigh a certain thing. Yeah, very difficult to juggle with other objects. Yeah. So we put a minimum weight limit of an ounce, which of course uh, went, went itself to many jokes about, Sure. You, know, you do know what an ounce looks like, don't you? Right, how big is an ounce, right? <laughs> and then after performing at Dudley Griggs a number of times, we started performing at the, at the Guthrie Theater, a very large formal theater in Minneapolis, where someone brought up, actually two people brought up a very large piece of granite that probably weighed well over 100 pounds, <laughs> at which point we figured, well, maybe we should put an upper weight limit on this. And so we put an upper weight limit of 10 pounds, although... You know, someone brought like a 16-pound bowling ball. We'd make an exception and Howard would juggle it anyway. Yeah, that's pretty heavy, though, but that makes sense. I mean, you can only juggle something so heavy or so light. Right. And then also at one point, we had to put a few other parameters, like no live animals. <laughs> someone right. at Dudley Riggs Dinner Theater brought like a live lobster onto stage. And Howard, who was a biology major in college, explained that if he juggled it, he probably would not survive. And he really didn't want to do this. But we had made this agreement with the audience, and did they want want us to do this? And they said, yeah, yeah, do it. And so he did, and the lobster died, and the audience was sad. And we sent it to the kitchen and had it cooked up and ate it after the show. <laughs> and right. from then on, put another rule onto it that 
we would not accept any live animals. And then we also put put in a rule that no objects that would prevent the person juggling from continuing to be a live animal. Hmm. Every now and then someone would bring up like a fire extinguisher. Sure. And uh, a little thing, if it does get dropped, it could be a serious problem or like a circular saw blade. So within those parameters, heavier than an ounce, no heavier than 10 pounds, no live animals, nothing that would keep the champ from being a live animal. We would get some interesting objects, you know, like a slinky. And again, it wasn't a particular object that would make it hard, but a combination of objects. Like a watermelon is juggleable. Not easy, but juggleable. A pound of butter is juggleable. If yeah. you get both warm butter and a watermelon at the same time, <laughs> right. then you have a greased watermelon, which is much harder to juggle. Sure. Like a watermelon, a bu- butter, and a slinky. That would be a pretty, pretty tricky one. Right. Actually, the... One of the most picturesque I remember is a bowl of chocolate pudding, a bag of dead frogs and formaldehyde. God, right. Which, who knows what lab that came from, and a slinky. And there was a hole in the bag of frogs. <laughs> and so Howard threw the pudding up, and there'd be this trail of chocolate pudding coming out of the bowl, and then a bag of frogs, and there'd be this trail of little dead frogs in the air, and then a slinky would go up, and mix them all together. Good times, good times. Very picturesque, hard to juggle. <laughs> well, let's talk about, we have uh, still some stuff to cover because at a certain point, at, uh, I have here 17 years, you decided to call your permanent uh, partnership with them quits, even though you did perform with them from time to time. What brought about your end of your involvement as a full-time Karamazov brother? We had done Comedy of Errors in Chicago, which had, I don't know, a month or two of rehearsal and then a, a run at the theater. And then... We did a production of the, the Three Moscow Tears, which was, again, a production involving you know, 15 or 20 people, and a director and a lighting designer and a costume designer and such at a formal theater with more than a month of rehearsals and a run at the theater. That was basically Alexander Dumas' story, The Three Musketeers, Reset in Revolutionary Russia. Mm-hmm. The other members of the group didn't really like doing one-nighters and wanted to do longer runs in theaters and enjoyed working in larger productions with a director and such. My preference was still for the self-produced, self-directed, juggling-based shows. I wasn't an actor. I had no aspirations to become an actor. I was you know, a juggler, a performer, an entertainer, and enjoyed doing the four or five-person you know, shows that we were doing. And not being married, I didn't mind doing one-nighters for months at a time around the country. And we also did a production of Stravinsky's L'Histoire de Soldats at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And the other members of the group were interested in doing these larger productions, which would keep us in one city for like three months at a time and generally not make very much money. And I was more interested in doing the juggling-based shows that we had more control over when it was one of these shows every year or two, I was fine with it. It got to the point where the others wanted to do, wanted to focus on doing these larger shows and longer runs at theaters. And I said, well, actually, that's not where my interest lies. I'm happy to keep doing the one-nighters when you want to do the one-nighters with our own show. And if the three of you want to do these theatrical projects, great, go for it. And they said, no, we We want everyone to do everything, at which point I said, fine, in that case, that's not how I want to spend my life. Go for it. I'll do other things. And so 
1992, after performing in Australia, I retired for the first time. And then in 1994, I started filling in a bunch. And they also hired me back to do, in addition to performing, it was a pretty self-contained company. We each had jobs other than performing. And I was working as the financial manager and bookkeeper while I was performing. And after not being there for two years and someone else in the group taking over some of it and the group's accounting firm taking over some of it, after a while, no one knew what was going on and the group was in debt. So I was hired back to act as a financial manager again and also filled in off and on if someone was sick or injured. And then in 98, 99, went back on the road when you know, the person who'd come in to replace me left and then and a new person and shows needed to be covered until a new person could be trained and a new person had to be trained. So I filled in for like six months and then the next year someone else left and I went back and filled in for quite a while. Now, when you would fill in, would you play other parts or I mean, would you talk on stage or always play the same role? I'd always play the same role, same character, although I would sometimes juggle different parts. So like with the terror trick that we mentioned earlier, yeah. which after 9-11, the group decided to change the name to the danger trick mm. because terror became yeah. a trigger word for many people. So over the years, initially I was bringing out the champagne glasses at the end of the trick. Over the years filling in, I juggled all three different parts of that trick and filling in, I would, you know, I would juggle whichever part of whichever piece in the show that was needed, although my character remained the same. And I say that this is kind of a fun fact that in 2019, there was a reunion of the original four members at the 50th Oregon uh, County Fair. That must have been something. Or Country Fair. Country, country Fair. Fair, not County. Okay, Country Fair. Yeah, the Oregon Country Fair. Yeah, it was a reunion for the 50th anniversary of the Oregon Country Fair not the 50th anniversary of the Flying Karamazov Brothers. There are actually plans. Well, that's coming up, right? That's in 2023 would be the 50th year? Right. I just got a call from Paul the other day about possibly doing a 50th reunion show hmm. with the original four members. So not certain if that's going to happen. If it does happen, it would happen in San Francisco sometime in 2023. Stay tuned. We'll see if we can pull it off. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, let's talk a little bit about your post-Karamazov uh, run, because you're also involved in a very important new vaudeville festival. Tell me a little bit about your involvement with the uh, Moisture Festival, and uh, we'll probably have to end with that, but tell us a little about Moisture Festival and how you got involved with that up in Seattle. Late in 2003, when I was pretty much retired and living in Seattle and trying to decide what to do next, two old friends, uh, Ron Bailey, who is a Seattle-based musician, and also the ringleader of the Royal Famille du Canavo, uh, sort of musical theater company that performs at the Oregon Country Fair, and Mac Navee, who is an artist and rabble-rouser in Seattle who's formed a lot of different arts groups in Seattle, were inspired by a variety festival in Berlin that Haki Ginda had produced, and that Tom Noddy had invited Ron Bailey to go to. And Ron came back thinking, oh, we should try to do something like this in Seattle. And he talked with Mac. And then Mac and Ron talked with me. And around the end of 2003, we decided to try producing a variety festival in Seattle. And in keeping with the Seattle weather, 
we decided to call it the Moisture Festival. So in the spring of 2004, we rented Reverend Chumway's tent and rented a parking lot in Seattle and put on a week of shows. And everyone had a great time and we didn't lose too much money. (laughs) And so we decided to do it again the next year. But meanwhile, on the first year, we had wanted to be able to sell like beer and wine in the lobby, if a tent has a lobby. Sure. And we arranged with the original local microbrewery, Hales Ales, and they did the beer sales, beer and wine sales, using their liquor license. And this bearded guy in coveralls brought a, a pony keg into the tent that was serving as the green room, dressing room, and said, here, this is for the performers. And Ron said, great. Thanks. And if, if you see Mike Hale, please thank him for me. And he said, I am Mike Hale. So the owner and founder of the brewery you know, was there and saw the show and liked what we did. And he said, yeah, ne- so I do this next year. Why don't you do, you know, we have a warehouse. You can probably do it there. So we actually did, as an experiment, two shows in the warehouse of Hale's Ales uh, because we, we wanted to do a fundraiser to get some money to be able to fly in a few performers because the first year it was performers from basically Seattle and Portland. And I think part of the reason that I was brought in on this was because I knew a lot of performers from having toured the world for many years. I was twisting the arms of friends, saying, hey, come to Seattle and perform <laughs> at this new festival for no money, but we'll show you a good time. And it worked. And we ended up moving the festival to Hills Brewery and turning one of their warehouses into a theater that we renamed Hills Palladium as a sort of joke because he was famous for his pale ale. Hmm. It was a Palladium. Right. It went from one week to two weeks to three weeks to four weeks. And after a while, we were producing 40 shows in multiple venues over four weeks, plus workshops, plus lectures. And it more and more people, you know, the early years, it was twisting the arms of friends to come perform at this festival. And then as words started to spread, I realized by about the seventh year of the festival, things were changing when theater reviewers in Seattle started referring to other shows as, well, it's not quite as much fun as the Moisture Festival, but <laughs> right. a little after that, I started getting calls from people saying, hey, I'm performing with Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. I'm sick and tired of doing the same thing six nights a week one of my weeks of vacation falls during the moisture festival i've heard about your festival can i come out there and have fun so generally I say sure well i think that's one thing about the reputation of the moisture festival it's known as a good hang mm-hmm. like like if you want to be there with a lot of other fun performers you guys have a wonderful dinner every night you've created a really nice environment like i've, I've been lucky enough to have been there uh, both as a team as a solo uh, quite a few times and yeah i have nothing but uh you know if people want to get involved it's definitely one of the premier events you know for our type of acts yeah i mean yeah. it's it's the largest it's become the largest and longest running variety festival in the world from what we can tell it's been going since 2004 in 2020 we had to cancel it a week before opening night because of the pandemic in 2021 we produced a series of online shows, which had the advantage that we didn't have to deal with work visas for performers from overseas 
so we could get some performers that we'd wanted to bring to the festival, but you know, getting work visas is yeah. time consuming and very expensive and no guarantees. So we were able to get a bunch of performers from outside of the U.S. to send us videos, and we pulled some videos from our archives. Alan Potkin has been doing a great job of archiving, taping and archiving shows at the festival for many years. And in 2022, we are planning and hoping to be able to do a live and in-person festival again. I started out booking the acts for the festival because I knew a lot of the performers, the variety of performers from around the world, and I'm in the middle of booking the 2022 festival right now. And what are the dates in 2022? Uh, dates are March 17th through April 10th. And if um, I know you've used a lot of jugglers in the past. What are, who are some of the few uh, of the jugglers in the past you've used? And if jugglers listening want to get involved... Uh, what's the email they would send their information to? If someone wants to get involved, what they should do is go to the Moisture Festival website, moisturefestival.org, because yes, it is a nonprofit organization. Go to the performer booking information page, read about how the festival works, how the finances work, how it's structured. And then if you're still interested, at the bottom of that page of the website, there is a an artist questionnaire fill that out which lets us know who you are where you are where we would need to bring you in from what you want to do and then we'll get in touch uh, to let you know the 2022 festival is already fairly full because when we had to cancel the 2020 festival at the last minute we told all the performers who were confirmed that we'd give them first option on 2021 and then when that couldn't happen in person we gave them first option on 2022 most of the people booked for 2020 do want to come perform in 2022 but there were a few like you dan uh <laughs> well who yeah. have said no i'm retired <laughs> i'm not really performing anymore yeah so there are some performers who are not coming back for a variety of reasons so that leaves some space for performers who were not booked not booked in 2020 and so yeah go to the website go to the performer booking information page if after reading it you're interested fill out the artist questionnaire at the bottom and if what you're doing is what we're looking for for next spring and the scheduling the timing works out great if not 2023 will be a wide open field and you, uh, like I said, you brought a lot of good jugglers in over the years. You brought in Luke Wilson, I remember. Yeah. Of course, Frank Olivier is always a, a big part Frank of Olivier, it. Frank Olivier, yeah. uh, Andy Cooper, Niels Dunker, Freddie Kenton, you know, whom I consider a juggler. His specialty is balancing things. Mm -hmm. Reese Thomas, Charlie sure. Brown. Yeah, Alex Zerby, a lot of the local guys come in for a day or yeah, two. Yeah, a lot of the local guys, the Raspini brothers, whoever they are. <laughs> what um, about the passing uh, zone? Do they ever make it out there? Rude Berry. Passing oh, Team Root Berry? Passing, did. Passing Zone hasn't. Oh, I talked there to you them go. a few years ago, <laughs> and I actually, now that you know, you're not coming, there there is a space for another juggling act or two, and I, I do want to reach out to them and see if they're interested this year. Well, they're not bad. I think they would do okay. I think they'd be fine, so I give yeah, them if, my thumbs up. Yeah, if, if they're willing to fly out and you know hang for a week in Seattle for and make, who knows, tens of dollars. <laughs> uh, well, like you say, it's all communal. 
the, the interesting right. thing about your festival is it's done sort of by shares. Like everybody gets an equal share uh, yeah. of the of the payment. So it's not yeah. it's not high paying, but as far as an experience of a communal, you know, a great hangout, great time with other performers, it really has greater a reputation as a kind of a not don't miss kind of festival to perform at. Yeah. I mean it's organized and produced by performers for performers. The audiences are great, but it's really for the performers. It has an unusual financial system. It is a nonprofit. And, you know, every act has, you know, like 10 acts and a live show band and a host. And we keep ticket prices low to make it accessible to the community. And you still show up and perform sometimes? Like you still do an act occasionally, occasionally at the festival? I did regularly for the first few years. And then when we had, when we started having more acts wanting to perform, then we had slots available. I started asking people to, yeah, maybe you know, hold off a year or two and then we'll bring you back. And I figure I better do the same thing for myself. I realize it's a lot easier to produce a festival without also performing in it. But every now and then, if someone you know, is like sick or injured and an actor is needed at the last minute to fill in, I'll run home and grab some cigar boxes or some light wands and run back and, you know, and fill in. So if called upon, you still can get up there and, and stretch your stuff. So now, also, you've also been very active in the IJ. Were you one time uh, president of the IJ? Or what was your involvement with the IJ? Uh, not, not president. I was, I was on the board. Actually, before that, what happened was uh, I noticed that the, the annual juggling convention and the European juggling festival sometimes were at the same time. After yeah, I, same week. Yeah. After I left the Karamazovs, I started going to the European festival and was annoyed that sometimes there was a conflict. And I said, don't you guys ever coordinate with each other? And basically the answer was no. <laughs> and right. so I became the first American representative to the European Juggling Association and started coordinating between the two to have the festivals happen you know, a week or two or more apart rather than at the same time. Right. So people can go to both, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I was also on the board of the IGA for a few years. You know, organized the Renegade shows in Portland at the Portland IGA. You know, I think the first IGA I went to was in 1974 in Youngstown when I was just juggling as a hobby before I started working with the Karamazovs. I was traveling across the country on my motorcycle after finishing my two years of alternate service. They had heard about this convention and sort of made a little detour to go up there. And I'm glad I did because I met a lot of the old guard, you know, Jerry Greenberg and Al Jennings and uh, Paul Bachman and on and on and became involved with the IJ at that point. And what are your plans for the future? So I know you have Moisture Festival in 20. Is the uh, Chautauqua summer tour still going on? The things you do in the summers? Possibly. So in 1981, the Fine Karamazov Brothers and the Gusentide Institute, a group of doctors sort of fronted by Patch Adams, started doing uh, summer tours modeled after the Chautauquas of the... Like a lecture circuit type of thing, yeah. Late 1800s, early 1900s, right, combining education and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So the doctors would do education and we would do entertainment. And we did this regularly every summer for many, many years up until the summer of 2020. There is a hope to do it again in the summer of 2022, depending upon how things go with the pandemic. So the, the Chautauqua as an organization still exists. 
Paul from the Karamazovs, you know, has done the booking of it and is sort of pushing it forward. You know, there are tentative plans to do another summer tour in July of 2022, immediately following the Oregon Country Fair. Well, we've come to the end of our time, Tim, unfortunately, because we barely scratched the surface of the Karamazovs and your Moisture Festival. There's just so much depth to your life and career. But hopefully this overview gave people an idea of what what uh, your involvement with the Karamazovs like and how they can get involved in the Moisture Fest. And maybe we should give a shout out to uh, Sam Williams, who uh, yeah. passed away in, in 20, the, one of the members. Uh, yeah. His name was Shmerdikov? Shmerdikov. Yeah, a great loss after he retired from the Karamazovs uh, to raise his twin sons after his wife passed away. He became a bus driver for the city of Seattle, King County Metro, and actually had a heart attack while driving a bus, but was able to safely pull the bus over to the side of the road while on a bridge, saving everyone on the bus before dying from a heart attack. Yeah, I have a lot of great memories of him, especially uh, from Moisture Festival, because he would get up and do some outrageous uh, skits, and he had a wonderful, you know, big personality. I remember when he did the big giant floating head. <laughs> yeah, he was known as the funny one. He was. He was very, very funny, and he was a wonderful, wonderful guy. So nice to give him a shout out. Yeah, and he's sorely missed. Well, Tim, thank you so much for the time you spent uh, talking about the Karamazovs. I still hope to get some uh, other members. It's surprising that it's been 102 episodes. And I haven't um, come across anybody from the Karamazovs yet. And I, I, I still believe that they're probably the most famous juggling act that ever existed. You know, the one that uh, broke through to the public. We could have gotten more famous if we managed to set Dolly Parton's wig on fire when we were on her television show. After doing the camera rehearsal, they said, oh, let's stick the wig and get it fireproof <laughs> before you do this. So yeah, There's always that moment in your career when you think, if I just did this or, you know, if I just hit Johnny Carson with a knife, maybe... Right. But I don't think we want to be famous that way. We want to be famous as uh, as great jugglers, great juggling acts. And certainly uh, your involvement with the Moisture Festival and the Karamazov Brothers puts you in that legion of uh, you know great jugglers of history. And I really appreciate you spending some time today on the Drop Everything podcast. Yeah, well, it's been uh, a pleasure chatting with you. And as you say, there there is a lot more. So if you run out of other people, give me a call. But yeah, you might give any of the other Karamazovs a call. I can give you their contact info. And... Yeah, because I don't know them. I, I know you. So I never, that's one reason I haven't reached out because uh, they haven't been as involved in the IJ as you. And obviously, you know, our friendship through Moisture Festival, a little bit easier. But I definitely will swing back around and t- do more about the Karamazovs in the future. Thanks again. I appreciate your doing this podcast. I've been enjoying listening to them. Well, thanks again for being a guest on the podcast. The great Mr. Tim First. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 102, my conversation with Tim first. Thank you, Tim. And thanks for sharing those stories about the Flying Karamazov Brothers, Moisture Fest, and so much more. I'll try to get more members of the Flying Karamazov Brothers on future episodes. All right, let's thank the IJA once again by going to juggle.org. You can learn more about this great group of jugglers called the International Jugglers Association. Go to Amazon, check out my books. They make great Christmas presents, even though Christmas has just passed. Next year, for sure. And next year, I'll also see you in Cedar Rapids at the IJA Juggling Festival. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.